Hi, it's great to be uh, speaking to you today. So I'm continuing in our This Is Our God series. Uh, this Is Your God series. And I, I wanted to start with just a question of what is power? If I say the word power, what comes to your mind with that? What do you think of when you think of power? Or think of someone having power? I've got some uh, examples here on the screen um, of images we might think of. Some... Uh, you know, image of Zeus or some other kind of mythical godlike character. Um, Donald Trump is the most powerful man in the world, holds the most powerful position in the world um, over United, President of the United States of America. Uh, or it might be something military, it might be as a, an image of the atomic bomb, it might be the power of the sun, it might be um, many things can come up, I suppose, when we think of power. Uh, many negative images can also come up. You know, it might be um, it might be a positive thing for you, the idea of power. Maybe you have power, maybe you have power over someone that's a good thing or power over people you like that. Or your experience of power might be negative. You might have, uh, do you know, you might have been subject to power used in, in, a, in a bad way um, over you. Either way, something strikes when we think of the word power. And I suppose a lot in our culture, the opposite of power could maybe be seen as submission. If someone has power, um, the opposite is, is submission under power. And submission could be seen as a weakness. Do you know, a lot of the fight, particularly where uh, I'm growing up in, in the West, in, uh, in London, um, being subject to something is seen as a lack of power. Everyone wants to strive for a higher position, some position of authority, work for yourself. Even um, to use an example, something like the modern feminism movement, um, I'm definitely not making a comment <laughs> on feminism itself. I'm not going to get myself into that much uh, trouble. I definitely don't have time to expand anything of a thought on it. But the kind of idea of that uh, movement is um, being fed up of the idea that men have full power over women. And so therefore, women need to, need to regain full power for them to use for themselves. It's the idea that someone has power and is lording that over us, using it for their own selfish gain, so we must grab power back and use it for our own selfish gain. Um, even if that's not the intention, the idea that we want power to use is self-centered, isn't it? It's saying, I want power for me, so I am powerful. Yeah. So often that's how we use power, and we do not want to be seen as submitting to someone. So who holds true power? Well, my message today is I'm looking at that God is glorious in power. Do you know, God is the full embodiment of what power is. Do you know, if you're unsure of that, look at creation. Who else can bring the whole universe, planets, stars, creation, animals, trees, us? Who else has the power to bring all of that into life? And has the same power to end it all in an instant. Do you know, God is power and he is glorious in his power. Let me read Isaiah 40. I'll read it from verse 12 um, where, you know, Isaiah is just it's from the prophecy that he's written down. And we just get this image of God's power. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales of the hills in a, ba in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? 
Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? It's just giving you this image of God holding all creation in the tiny palm of his hand, all of creation, all of the oceans, all of the dust, in the palm of his hand, how massive and powerful God is. No one's taught him how to do this. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. Every single powerful superpower nation is like a drop in the bucket compared to God. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. Nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. For whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashion silver chains to it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rod. They'll look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits on throne, enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people like grasshoppers. You can't make an image of God out of man-made things. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, to nothing, and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they all wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who, cre who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them forth each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow and he will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We just get this glorious image of the all-powerful God. What in creation is above him? Who in his creation can fully understand him? Who has more power than the one who brought all things into being? When I think of power, I think of God. I just, there is nothing else. Don't get me wrong, I think of all the things I've listed off and I think of the abuses of power because there are people in this earth who, who have power to do many things. End my life, influence my wages, influence how I live. But no one has more power over me than God. So if God is glorious in power, then Jesus is glorious in God's power. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God. Do you know, he was there at the beginning of creation. He will be there at the end of days. Jesus is fully God, but came as fully man. And that's mind-blowing to think the whole power of God is in the man Jesus. But even Satan recognized that. 
He totally did because Satan wants to try and tempt Jesus. Yeah? Satan wants Jesus to come under his authority. Satan desires all the power of God. He wants to be God and wants Jesus to submit to him and come under the power of Satan. So Satan tempts him. We read about this in Luke 4. Uh, Jesus has gone, uh, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, this is just kind of before his ministry kicks off, um, the three years when he's 30 years old, he's full of the Holy Spirit and left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. So the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, I don't know if you've ever been tempted by something. Um, I get, you know, there's loads of temptations and struggles of sin. But I haven't ever been tempted to turn a stone into bread. I don't think I've ever considered that as part of my power, nor is the devil, funny enough. Um, I think you'd be worried about me and, and looking to send me to hospital if I'd started trying to turn stones into bread um, because I'm hungry. But Satan recognises that Jesus could. Jesus has the authority over the stone to turn it into bread. He's thinking, Jesus, you're hungry. You can turn that stone into bread. Let me tempt you to do that. Jesus replies to him. He said, no, it's written. Man shall not live on bread alone. He's saying, I don't need bread to be sustained. I'm here living on the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Come under my authority and I will give you the world. Wow. Isn't that the power most men seem to grasp? Most people seem to grasp? Hey, power over people, power over the whole world, extreme power. How many wars have been fought to have power over the world? The devil says, I will give it to you, Jesus, right now. You can have power and authority over the whole world if you worship me. Jesus says to him, no, it's written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus saying, no, God, my father, is where all power is from. And he is the only one I will worship and the only one I will obey. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, see Satan's thinking, you're using scripture to tell me why you shouldn't do this. Well, I'm going to use, I know some scripture of my own. He says, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's saying, come on, then prove it. You're the son of God. Show me this mighty power that you have. Because it's written, if you just throw yourself off this temple, God's going to save you. The power, he will send all his angels to you. He's totally trying to manipulate Jesus. He's trying to say, show off your mighty power, Jesus. Come on. Are you really who you're saying you are? Show off your power. Jesus doesn't fall for it. He says, do not put. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, no, I'm not going to test God. And I do not need to prove myself to you. My power is not in my might and, and, and authority over all things. No. I have power against temptation and sin, Satan, and you cannot deceive me or tempt me. Man, how I wish I had that power. 
You better say no to every temptation. I'm so much weaker than Jesus, yet he stands against every temptation thrown at him. Do you know where Israel, in the time of wandering, the 40 years in the desert, failed at every temptation, every point, every desire to, to be fed, every single time they wanted power, they failed. Jesus succeeded in every area that they failed here. And he gains all the power in that moment because he stands firm against temptation. He's teaching us something different of what it means to be powerful. He's such an unlikely Messiah. He's so unlikely. He's not what they were expecting. Jesus is largely rejected because they're expecting a warrior, uh, a battle king, someone to come in triumphantly and throw away the Romans, come and give uh, Jerusalem full power again. Yet he came to serve and stand against sin and temptation, not to use power for his own glory, but for God's glory. Jesus came not to be the most uh, visibly powerful man in the world, but to empower the people, to set an example of what it means to be full of the power of God and to serve God and therefore serve his people. It tells us, Paul writes in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God and did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Sorry, let me start again. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Even that statement is mad. Yeah, Paul totally recognises, hey, we need to be how we are with one another, how you are in a church, how you are with your work colleagues, how you are with your family, your friends. We need to have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, who in being in very nature has all the power of all creation, of all of the world, who's the most powerful person, man ever to walk the earth, didn't consider the equality of God something to be used to his own advantage, didn't see all of the power he possessed to be used for his own gain or his own advantage, but rather totally humbling himself to take the nature of a servant, or better translated, um, a slave is the better translation of the Greek word that's used there, to be a slave being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance in a man and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most humbling, humiliating way to die. Totally mind-blowing. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every name should bow, um, every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every time acknowledged that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus had all power and authority over all things, yet didn't use it for his own gain, humbled himself um, and therefore was given all the glory. That's a total switch around of how we see power. We think if you have power, you use it over someone. That's what we've seen most from power. Power is used against someone. Jesus set the example of having all the power and, use, and, uh, and using it to, to serve people and was given all of the glory and the highest place as a result. 
Another example, John 13, an example we see this in action. Jesus being totally humble to serve. Um, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, uh, verse 2. Jesus, he's, he's coming close to when he's going to be uh, imprisoned and eventually executed. And this is kind of the last meal where he's with the disciples. It says, verse 2, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he, come, he came from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, this is the position of a slave. What he's doing here is getting into the dress code you would have been if you were one of the lowest slaves. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This is really significant. In the day of Jesus, over 2,000 years ago, you know, people wore open foot sandals mostly. And they're wandering around and their feet are getting dirty. Do you know, a nice foot wash isn't just kind of an added extra. You needed to have your feet washed all of the time. And then a house that had servants and slaves, this would have been the lowest position. Do you know, I live in London. If I walked around in sandals all day in the city of London, my feet would be horrible. <laughs> this was not a good position to be in. Yet Jesus humbles himself into the position he takes his clothes as a slave, knowing who he is. It says Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knows he has the power of God and comes to wash feet. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus said, you do not understand what I'm doing, but later you understand. No, said Peter, you, sh you shall never wash my feet. Peter's thinking, I'm here to serve you, Lord. I know who you are. I know you're the Messiah. You can't wash my feet. This is so embarrassing. I feel so um, humiliated that, that the King of Kings would wash my feet. Jesus is saying, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Well then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have, who have had a bath need only to wash their feet and the whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For you know, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. He knew Judas was going to betray him and Judas was there. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked him. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so. For that is what I am. Now that I am your Lord and teacher, now, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Wow, this is Jesus' ministry summed up here. He knows he has all the power of God. He even acknowledges here, that you know I am teacher and Lord. You guys know I am the Messiah. You say I'm the Messiah. You say I'm the Son of God. And rightly so. He tells them, that is exactly who I am. So I've washed, come to wash your feet. The most powerful man in all history. I've come to wash your feet. To set you an example of what you must do for one another. Man. Jesus came with all authority and power when he died and went to uh, and, and, and ascended from the grave. The last thing he says to his disciples before he ascends to heaven is now all power and authority has been given to you. 
So they have that same power. So this message is so important because when he says to disciples and any Christian, any person who says, I'm going to follow Jesus, he's saying, I will give you all the power and authority that I had. In another passage, he says, you will go on and do greater things than I. In this passage, he's telling you what to do with that power. He's saying, as I have used all of my power to wash feet, so should you. Man has got to get us off our high horse as Christians. That's got to humble us. Jesus, the most perfect one, the most powerful man, come and set the example by washing feet and says, do as I did. Wow. Author Brian J. Dodd comments on this. He says, it was as difficult for those disciples as it is for us to think of the Christian leadership role like that of the lowest slave. This is why it's so terrible when a church leader abuses their position, which happens so often. Because we've not been called to lord power over others, but to serve. My role as a pastor is not to lord authority over people, although God has given me some authority. It's not to use that authority to lord power over people, but to serve his flock serve his people and he's called us to do that in every environment you are every single bit of influence and it's so easy to be intimidated by Jesus level of sacrifice if we're supposed to look like that if we're supposed to serve him if we're supposed to be like him you think how can I ever look like that what does that mean for me to serve hey you might even be thinking I have no power I am just small what can I do man the smallest thing can make the biggest difference it really can. Because if God is glorious in power and Jesus is glorious in God's power and came to set the example of what it means to live as a man or woman um, full of God's power, then if we believe in Jesus, we are glorious in his power. We are. God gave us that through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus' example, through everything we read in Scripture. We are glorious in God's power. It's not about you. It's about what he does in you. So if you come to God with even the most smallest of things, he will multiply it tenfold, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, hundredfold. He will multiply the little you give. You serve in the area. You give the money that you can give. You serve in the area God has given you, the workplace he's given you, the people he's given to you. And you love them as Jesus loved those around him. And I promise you, the ripples will go on for ages. Something massive will change. You might not even see it in your lifetime. Let me give you two stories, two illustrations of this happening. Something seemingly small that makes a massive difference. The first is an illustration from the world of nature. So one of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century uh, has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. I think I've pronounced that right. A trophic cascade is an ecological process that starts from the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. The classic example of this is what happened in uh, Yellowstone National Park in America, in the United States, when wolves were introduced. Um, they were introduced in 1995, and the effect they had was humongous. A small thing, just a few wolves introduced, had a massive impact. 
Now, we know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent from about 70 years from Yellowstone National Park. Before they turned up, the numbers of deer, um, because there'd been nothing to hunt them, had built up so much. And despite the efforts by humans to control them through various methods, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it all away. They'd eaten it all. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though there were a few in number, just a few wolves, they started to have remarkable effects. What a few wolves can do to change um, Yellowstone Park. First, of course, they killed some of the deer. Uh, but that wasn't a major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. It had all grown back up. And as soon as that had happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds, uh, songbirds and uh, um, mig- migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase and because beavers, uh, because beavers like to eat the trees, there were more trees, the number of beavers started to increase. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers provided habitats for otters and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise which then meant more hawks, um, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on, uh, on the carcasses the wolves had left. Bears fed on them too. And their population began to rise as well, partly because there were more berries growing in the veg- regenerating sc- sc- uh, shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves and the deer. So it just started cascading more. But here's where it gets most interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. That's right, the wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections. All of which was great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks, so they collapsed less often. So the rivers became more fixed in their course. So the wolves, though small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of Yellowstone National Park, this huge, massive area of land, but it also changed its physical geography. Man, Now, I'm not for one second saying we should reintroduce wolves everywhere. That would not be good for where I live in London. (laughs) But it does show you that if we introduce more love, more care, more concern, more kindness, more other-centeredness into our lives and communities, if we use the power of God has given us to serve, even if your area of influence is so small, it could have a hum- the ripples of it could have a humongous effect. Let me use one uh, final story of where this happened. One life has affected many. 
And I'm going to tell you the story of a girl called Natasha. Natasha is 15 years old. She's part of uh, the youth group I ran. And Natasha uh, comes from a family who didn't really go to church. Her mum went to church a little bit, um, but they you know, weren't really living for Jesus and, and weren't following Jesus. Natasha was invited by uh, her friend who comes to our church uh, when she was 13 to start coming along to our youth group on a Friday night. And uh, in turn, she was then invited to come along to a youth camp we'd go away to called New Day. And at New Day, at the age of 13, Natasha decided she wanted to give her life to Jesus and start following Jesus. This was her decision, and she made that choice. Natasha then started coming along to our church more and more, and uh, bringing her mum sometimes on a Sunday, and getting more involved with church life, and really starting to follow Jesus, taking Jesus seriously. Um, and uh, two years ago, she... Uh, was going to be coming to New Day and had invited her brother. Her brother was going to come along. Her brother, you know, never been raised really knowing God, but had known, really idolised his sister and know how much her sister loved going to New Day. He had started coming sometimes to our Friday nights as well and thought, I'll come along to New Day. Two weeks before we were about to go to New Day, Natasha was uh, going on holiday with her best friend and her dad. They were going to France and uh, she... Natasha had many severe allergies. She was allergic to many things. And she grabbed a sandwich for her from the shop um, just before she jumped on a plane. She ate it on the plane, but the sandwich hadn't been labelled correctly. And it contained some stuff she was seriously allergic to. She had a severe allergic reaction on the plane and nothing worked to revive her. And she died in front of her dad and in front of her best friend. She died in the plane. It was incredibly sad and tragic. We were heartbroken trying to comprehend this. The only peace I could come to and we could come to was knowing that she'd given her life to Jesus and we knew she was with God. But it was still incredibly hard. But her dad, um, at the funeral, described seeing these angels over her body. Having this knowledge that although he had no faith in God before this point, that somehow he knew God had her and she was with him. Still in massive amounts of grief, somehow had this peace in knowing where she had gone. Her brother still came to New Day those two weeks later, unsure to, but decided to come anyway. And on those two weeks, on that week, sorry, at, at New Day, he found Jesus and decided he wanted to give his life to him and follow him. He brought his mum along to church. They started coming more regularly with their dad as well. Um, Being served and loved by the church in their time of tragedy. Both um, Natasha's brother and her mum decided to get baptised. Declare that they are now following Jesus with all their heart. A year later, Natasha's dad, who was an atheist really, or just totally didn't follow God before her death, also got baptised, shared a testimony of through his daughter's death, he found God through the tragedy and the hardship and the grief, he found God to be real and decided to follow him. Last year, in 2018, they were, um, their case was brought for review at the coroner's office to look at what went wrong. How did she die? How did it happen that she managed to eat something that wasn't correctly labelled and had something she was allergic into? And the result of this coroner's report meant that a law has been changed. They've called it Natasha's Law. A law has been passed in the UK that means no big chain can ever uh, not label an item correctly that has allergens in it. There will be lives saved as a result of this law being passed. And throughout this process, 
Natasha's parents were able to love all those involved. Every time they spoke, they didn't speak with anger or desire for revenge or retribution. They spoke with love and desire to forgive and desire to just see change that other lives might be saved. As a result of their um, Christ-like attitude to these things, they were given platforms to speak about their faith and speak about Jesus. At every opportunity, every media interview, they would speak something of their faith. Behind the cameras, they would share their faith and saw people respond to Jesus, decide they want to go to church and check out this faith that they had so passionately professed. They got to speak to government officials about the love of God within them. And the ripples of Natasha's life and death are still going on today and people are still being saved as a result of it. One life, a relatively short life, of a girl who decided I want to follow Jesus has had national significance in bringing the gospel to many people. That's the power of God. That's the power of God at work in someone, even through death. Nothing has power over you except for God. You need, no longer need to fear death, fear persecution, fear people not liking you. Because if you're in Christ, you know how God feels about you. And you know that the power of God is within you and that power can change a nation. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for everyone that's listening today, Lord, that you have chosen them. The fact that um, if they believe in you, they've already been chosen by you as significant. All people are significant, but the fact you revealed yourself to us is mind-blowing. We've seen truth, Lord, and you've given us power. And I pray, Lord, that we become more like you. That we come not to lord power over others, but to use the power you've given us to serve. Lord, to love people, to serve people, and to see people follow you, Lord, so that one day we'll all be united before you in heaven for all eternity. Jesus, I pray that something significant changes in our nations, Lord. And I pray that you start with us. In Jesus' name, amen.